The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. I'd like you to take your Bibles now and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And I want to look briefly at this passage in preparation for the Lord's table. This is one of the beloved accounts of the resurrection of our Lord. And there are two reasons that I choose this text this afternoon. The the first would be the reality of the resurrection, that uh, this is something that always must be on our minds because Christianity is grounded in the truth of the resurrection, and that is observed by reading the many places of Scripture that emphasize that there is no justification, there is no salvation unless Jesus arose from the grave. And then the second reason for looking at it is because of the Lord's Supper. Now, writing to the Corinthians, Paul explained that we are to observe the Supper until Christ comes again. And, of course, we wouldn't be able to do that if Jesus had not risen from the dead. And so the Lord's Supper is a celebration of Christ's death for sin, for his resurrection from the dead, and then also of his return to this earth, the promise that he gave. We have here a rather long reading, but there's certainly nothing wrong with reading long passages of Scripture. In fact, I'd like for you to note as we read this that Jesus had an especially important point to make about the Scriptures. I'm thankful that we read a lot of Scripture in our church and incorporated that because the Bible is the most important thing that we have, most important possession that we have because it does tell us about our God. It's unusual for me to take this much scripture in one reading at one time, so I assure you, don't sweat this. I'm not going to cover all these verses in detail. There are just a few points that I'd like to make that will help us in our thinking as we prepare for the supper. I think maybe we ought to stand as we read God's word, and let's just look at Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse number 13. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God in all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. 
Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. Certain of them which were with us went to the sepulchre and found it, even so as the women had said, but they saw him not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking bread. You may be seated. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. This is the story of the resurrection told from the vantage point of two disciples that had an encounter with the resurrected Lord. Now, obviously, these were not apostles. One of them is named Cleopas. The other is unnamed. But we know that they weren't, of course, of the 11, the 11 disciples that were now left minus Judas. Some have speculated that the unnamed disciple that we read of here was Luke, but we don't find any other place in Scripture that would tell us this. So even though these two were not apostles, they were typical of the disciples of Jesus. They were taught the same things. And this was the third day since the crucifixion. And among all of the disciples, there was this general malaise and hopelessness because in the words of these men who spoke to Jesus, we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And their response showed that they had no understanding of the many times that Jesus taught that he would be killed and arise from the dead. I want, to ta- want you to take note of two key verses in this passage, and you might want to circle these so each time you open your Bible you know the key parts of the passage. You can circle verse number 16, which says, But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And then circle verse number 31, And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. These are the two verses that I want to concentrate on for just a few minutes in our message this afternoon. Now first, I want you to note the disciples' ignorance of Christ. As these two are walking along the road of the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they were talking over the events of the past week. And specifically, what they discussed was what had just happened. And that's the discovery that the stone was rolled away from the mouth of the tomb where Jesus was buried. 
And they were also evaluating the report that women gave, the women that were a part of their company, they were disciples also, that said that angels had appeared to them and told them that Jesus had risen. And as they're walking and they're talking, they're joined by a stranger who overheard the conversation, only this was not really a stranger, this was the very one that they were talking about. Verse number 16 says, their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Now, that word holden, that's an old King James word. It, it just simply means they didn't recognize him. They didn't identify who he was. They couldn't tell who he was by whatever means, which we'll discuss in just a moment. So they didn't recognize him. But the question is, why, having been in the presence of Jesus before, did they not recognize him? And I'd like to suggest to you two reasons why they didn't recognize him. Though they had seen him many times, I think that we could say they didn't recognize him, first of all, because of their failed expectations. Their failed expectations of what they expected that Jesus would do. Now, you can read much commentary on this expression, their eyes were holden, and there will be arguments about whether this was a supernatural thing, or perhaps they didn't just look directly in his face and didn't see him clearly, or that their inability to recognize him was brought on by their unbelief. Now, I tend to believe it's a combination of all of those things, but I want to focus on the third of those reasons. It was because of their unbelief. How many times did Jesus say in the gospel accounts and recording by Matthew, Mark, Luke, how many times did Jesus say, and by John, how many times did he say that he would be crucified, then he would arise from the dead? In a key passage in Matthew chapter 16, after Jesus introduced to them the idea of his church, that he would form a church, he follows that up with this. And from that time forth, Jesus began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. Seems very clear, doesn't it? No mistaking in what he said. Jesus was constantly teaching them about this. The crucifixion and the resurrection. And that's all intended to give them great hope by saying, I will arise and I will come again in the glory of the Father with his angels. That's part of what we read in the gospel accounts too. But these disciples were the same as every follower at that time. They were found in confusion and in deep despair, discussing and doubting the reports of the resurrection. Well, what were their real doubts? They doubted Jesus would fulfill his promise. Now, I don't think that any of them, in the presence of Jesus, would have called him a liar. But they lived in that skepticism. Can it be true? Will he arise from the dead? Or maybe it just flew over their heads as they heard him speak. And I think this is the way that many Christians are today. They lived with failed expectations. Maybe they're not getting out of their Christianity what they think they should be getting. They live as if the promise that Jesus will return might not ever happen. And neither would they call Jesus a liar. They hear me preach about it. They read about in the Word of God. They wouldn't call Jesus a liar that he would come again. But there is... No holiness in their lives that indicates that Jesus could come at this very moment. 
The apostle John said, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And I can tell you that John wrote that from a position of experience, one who had learned his lesson because he was also one of these doubting disciples. All of them were. But he learned not to doubt. And so his testimony was, after he'd seen the resurrection and and being the apostle of Jesus Christ and charged with writing words of God, he tells us, do not doubt the promises of God. He is coming back and so you live like he's coming back. And then I think there are also many Christians that live in despair because of daily provisions. Again, they don't get what they think they ought to have. They want more than what they have. They don't accept that they're alive. And in fact, God is providing for them. God does take care of their needs. And it was after these kinds of attitudes that Jesus said, Take no thought for what you shall eat or drink or what you shall wear. Your heavenly Father already knows what you have need of. Failed expectations are a common problem for many Christians. So perhaps from our perspective as we read this story, we shouldn't be too hard on these disciples because they didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then another reason for their ignorance was worldly occupations. Worldly occupations. By this, I don't mean their jobs. I mean, their thoughts, what are they thinking about? Well, they are in despair. They're in hopelessness. Their thoughts were consumed with what might have been. They should have been joyous. They should have been praising God for what was told. An empty tomb had just been found. The discovery shouldn't have been a surprise at all. What this should have done was just lit them up. Yes, everything that Jesus said is coming true. But instead, here we find them self-consumed with a woe-is-me attitude. Ah, what could have been, what could have been. We hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. And what did they really hope for? Probably what all the others hoped for. What they wanted was a king in Israel because a king of their own would make their lives better. They sorrowed over these disappointments. Oh, it's interesting that Paul encouraged the Thessalonians to sanctification and holiness. They thought, well, that, that's too hard. Maybe it's not even worth it to try to live for Christ. And then Paul said to them, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others that have no hope. Christians should never be found sorrowing because there is no hope. Trouble is not unusual for Christians. If you're experiencing it, if you're living through it, it's not unusual. This is the lot for those who trust in Jesus Christ. And he said that it would be. If you had no suffering, if you had no trouble, if there were days that everything went, all days went exactly like you want them to go, then that would be an indication, well, maybe I am trusting self, not God. I don't really need him. The Lord knows that. So he sends you trouble. Sends you trouble to teach you. To trust him. Always to trust him. But the kind of trusting that we see among most Christians is the thing that they really want is to be financially prosperous. This would be the first thing that comes to our minds. Am I financially prosperous? They're not willing to acknowledge suffering 
for Christians. And we have now a very popular prosperity gospel that just encircles the world and especially those in the United States. And the thought is getting ahead. It's always getting more money. It's getting better houses and better cars. Just having a better lifestyle. Unfortunately, people are are not tuned in enough to know that all they're doing is enriching a few preachers and that 80% of the money that goes to the prosperity gospel comes from the least that can afford it, the most, the poorest of people that have on their minds, if I do this, I can be rich. But Christianity is not about making your life better, at least not in that way. Christianity is about living to the glory of God, which to you is supposed to bring more contentment than all the things that money can buy. Just knowing Christ and glorifying Him with your life. And then the minds of Christians are occupied with every other activity, as they say, that comes down the pike. Oh, it's countless numbers of people that I've talked to over the years that say, you know, I don't have time for church work. I don't have time for Bible reading. I don't have time to go to church. And we always have to come back to, why don't you have time? Because we all have the same amount of time. It's a matter of priorities. I mean, I don't know any other way to say it. If, if, if you're not here, then you must be doing something else. Something else has the priority. And so am I saying, well, nobody should ever miss a church service? Because if you miss a church service, oh, this is proof. You have turned away from God. I'm not saying that at all. No, I think we see this more like, like what the Word of God has to say about prayer. Uh, Paul said, pray without ceasing. But we know that when he said that, he didn't mean, oh, never get off your knees. Never come out of your prayer closet. Never go to work. Never stop praying. No, what he was talking about was a proper attitude about prayer. That you should always be in that attitude that you can talk to God at any time. And I think that this is the same way that it must be about prioritizing time for the Lord. That most people are not here and don't come because their lifestyle does not include the attitude of worship. They're not tuned in to the responsibility to worship. So long ago, they've made a decision what they're going to do. And now it never crosses their mind to make sure that they're in church every week. And I do think that this is what's happened to some of our people during this, this pandemic year and a half, whether you believe it existed or not. During this year and a half, people got used to not going to church. And members of our own church have found out that, well, we can kind of live without that. We don't really need to be there. And now this is the result of that. We, we see people that don't come to church when they could be here. And then... You know, people, when they, when they hear me say this, they, they've made their decision. It doesn't cross their minds about what they should be doing. When they're here, when they do come, oh, I preach about it. Now it's on their mind. And I don't know. I, I, I don't think this maybe is true of you. You're, you're too dedicated people for me to say that you're probably rationalizing the last time that you weren't here, why that was. And, it, you know, it's not really whether I understand it whether you could give me an excuse about this, the thing to do is to explain it to God. Let Him understand it, and then when you get it worked out with Him, you come and tell me, and then I can back off talking about it. If you have worldly occupations, then 
expect that your Christian life will be stunted to that extent. You see, these disciples were alive on the most blessed day in the history of the world. It was a Sunday afternoon, and that morning, Jesus had risen from the dead. I mean, you you go back all the way to the very beginning in Genesis and follow it all the way through, go to the creation itself. It's all for this moment. It's all for this, that Jesus would give his life for sinners, that he would die and arise from the dead. And this is the day that it happened. And the entire world escapes the judgment of God hinged upon this event. So this is the most blessed day and they missed it. And here they are in the presence of the risen Lord and they're ignorant of him. Now in fairness, I will say to you, I also do believe that this was supernatural because Jesus used this as an opportunity to teach them truths that would change them forever and make them into such strong disciples that they would die for the one who died for them. But it's also a product of unbelief. Why should God give them any peace, any contentment, and joy if they did not believe? And I would say the same to you. Why should you expect to find contentment in your Christian life? Why do you expect to find joy in your life if you don't really believe God? What about that holiness of our lives? What about that proof that the Bible always puts in front of us that shows that we are Christians, our obedience? If you really don't trust God, how will you ever find contentment in your life? I doubt that there's any one of you here tonight, I know this without question, there's none of you that would call Jesus a liar to his face. You would not do it. But be careful about how you answer questions about how much you believe in God. These disciples had a questionable belief, and you might imagine that brought a strong rebuke from Jesus. Now that brings me then to the second observation. And that is the disciples' illumination from Jesus. If you look at verses 22 to 24, this is astonishing unbelief. It is amazing misunderstanding by these disciples. They rehearsed what had happened that day. Certain women went to the tomb and the body was not there. They said, angels, the women said, angels told them he was alive. But Peter and John went to the tomb and they didn't see him. And then they added this little postscript there at the end of verse 24. But they, that is Peter and John, saw him not. Do you know what that was? This is them saying he couldn't be alive because Peter and John didn't see him. All those gals, they they said they saw him, but they didn't see him. Uh, uh, They said they saw angels, but those women must have been a little bit loony. I'll comment or won't comment, I should say, further on that because it's too pregnant, no pun intended, and... I'd be uh, in big trouble. Matthew 28 says, if you go there, it says, the women did, in fact, later see him. They saw him, and they ran, and they fell at Jesus' feet, and they held him. But these men did not recognize Jesus. Now, at that point, Jesus had heard enough. Notice what he did, verse 27. And beginning... At Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now what we have here is, in essence, what I've talked to you about this morning. 
That is scriptural revelation. That in the scriptures we find the self-revelation of God. How much time could we spend reviewing this material that Jesus taught them on this seven-mile journey? Now they're walking and they're talking. That would take maybe two or three hours. I don't know how slow they were walking. Maybe a little bit longer. Two or three hours to get to Emmaus. And in two hours, Jesus started at Moses. And, and that would mean he, he started in Genesis because Moses wrote Genesis. And then he went to all the prophets telling them everything the Old Testament taught about him. I don't know how he did that. I, I, w- I was thinking about this passage, and I'll just throw this into the message tonight. You, you remember, I hope, all of those sermons, and I'm still not even done with the series, all of those sermons I've taught you on the tabernacle. How much information... Is there in all of that about Jesus? What if Jesus said, you know, I think I'm going to take Mark Smith's sermons on the tabernacle and explain to them everything that he said that's shown in the tabernacle. Well, he wouldn't do that, of course, but that's how much information we're talking about. That's just in one segment of the scriptures. What would it be like to hear an exposition of Isaiah 53 about the suffering Savior, the Old Testament's clearest passage about Christ's death. What would it be like to have him tell it to you? What would that be like? And, and this is a passage that should have been well known to them. If you didn't know it, folks, I think you do, all of the Bible is about Jesus. All of it, all of it. You, you might not be able in every passage to make all the connections, but every page will somehow connect to Jesus Christ. Even those tedious list of names that you see in Numbers or First Chronicles linked to Christ. The stories, the great stories you read in the Bible. Noah and the Ark, of course, links to Christ. I mentioned that this morning. Balaam and his donkey, linked to Christ. Ruth and Boaz, linked to Christ. Samson and Delilah, in their own way, linked to Christ. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's a link to Christ. Zechariah talks about two olive branches, two golden pipes, golden oil. Strange references, but they link to Christ. You pick a passage, and I promise you, we could sit down for a while, we can trace it to something to do with Christ. And this is because Jesus Christ himself is the living word. Now there wasn't time to to explain all the connections. What Jesus did was just give them a jet tour through the scriptures. He zipped through it in these two hours or so. And they knew all that you ever wanted to know but were afraid to ask. How powerful is the Word of God. Well, it would take dozens upon dozens and dozens and dozens of messages to talk about the power of the Word of God and what Jesus told them about Himself. But I'll just shorten a few things, a couple things up here for you. It is by the Word of God that we're born again. That's the most important thing for you, isn't it? It's by the Word of God that we're born again. Peter said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So can you imagine what it would have been like to have the author of Scripture explain Scripture to you? The subject of Scripture to tell you what it's all about? I just wish we had more time to talk about this amazing Word of God. But I need to move along. So do you know what it did to them? 
they were illuminated by the master himself. And what this did was to bring them a spiritual revival. This is what we're looking for now. A spiritual revival because of what we know about Jesus in the word of God. What effect does the word of God have? Well, in verse number 28, they reached Emmaus and Jesus acted like he would continue beyond. But verse 29 says they were anxious to hear more. And so they begged him to come into their home and tell them more. And what is the word of God? Well, we can say that it's a cool drink for a thirsty traveler. That the word of God is bread for a hungry man. That God's word is life for dying souls. And then Jesus illustrated this in verse number 30. It came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. In just a few minutes we will sit and break bread and the bread and the supper represents Jesus Christ, the bread that came down from heaven. It's the manna from heaven, the living word of God. Now I don't suggest to you that These disciples were observing the Lord's Supper because they weren't. But still, Jesus illustrated what they just heard. And that might have been a clue to his identity. I mean, couldn't this have brought to their minds what the apostles had told them? All the conversations in these two days that had gone by, now the third, was about the crucifixion. And they had to be rehearsing over in their minds again and again what Jesus said before he died. Now, they hadn't yet made sense of it because none of them were fully aware and believing in the resurrection at this point. But couldn't what Jesus did here be a clue to his identity? The word of God gripped them. What he had to say resonated with them because they were believers for sure. And when you hear the word of God, there's one thing that you want, more of the word of God. You want to ingest more of God's Word. And folks, I can see this in the eyes of people that listen intently to messages as they're being preached. And they want to make every effort to be in God's house where they hear the Word of God preached. And that's not me. I know that you don't come here for me because I'm severely limited. When I go to the Shepherds Conference, uh, I, I, I come home rejoicing for Christ. Oh, what I've heard, I rejoice for Christ, but I despair because of comparisons. <laughs> I, I hear these messages and I think, oh, Smith, you are so poor. I don't stay that way, though, because it's not about me. It's not about my abilities. God spoke through Balaam's donkey. So hopefully I'm just a little step above that. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the work, not me. But some don't listen too well to the Holy Spirit. They're not excited about the Word. So the next service they may choose not to be here. And I've already covered that, so we can move on. Now look what it did to these two. Here's the second key verse. Verse 31. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Their eyes were opened. And this is also what the Word of God does. It opens blinded eyes. John Newton, in his song that we'll sing in a few minutes, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was what? Blind, but now I see. This is what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. That the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And that's what the word did. Verse 32, and they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way? And while he opened to us the scriptures, their hearts were burning when they heard the word. You know, that's a familiar expression found in the Old Testament. The great prophet Jeremiah was in turmoil because of the word of God. He was in turmoil because people mocked him when he preached. They made fun of him when he preached. They persecuted him. And he determined, Jeremiah determined, this word of God has caused me so much trouble, I'll not speak it any longer. I'm not opening my mouth about this subject again. But it didn't work for him to try and shut up. Because of this, the word of God burned in him. Jeremiah wrote, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Now, what he's talking about there is, is God told him to speak the word, and yet when he did, Jeremiah got rebuffed. He was rebuked. He was made fun of. And he says, everyone mocks me. You've deceived me. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil. Because the word of God and word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Jeremiah said, the word burns in me. My bones are in fire. I can't hold this in any longer. Now you think about this for a moment. The disciples had just told Jesus, those women were crazy. They couldn't have seen angels. He can't be alive. But now after Jesus has revealed himself, and he's been through the word of God to show them all the things concerning himself, they're not afraid to be called crazy too. They're home, just made a seven-mile journey to get there. And what did they do? Verse 33, and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem because they're going to tell this message to them. Maybe you guys didn't know this, but it's all true. And found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. Now, I want you to notice something about this because it can be a little bit confusing to you. It appears that these two men are the ones who said, saying the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. But they wouldn't have known that he appeared to Simon, would they? So this is not them speaking. This is the disciples speaking. So these men immediately come into the room and the first thing the disciples say to him, hold on before you tell us anything. Simon saw Jesus. Simon saw Jesus. So Peter saw the risen Christ. But you can be sure of this, that these two disciples had come back to Jerusalem to confirm the resurrection just in case nobody else had seen him. And then in verse 35, they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. When your eyes are open to Jesus... When the word of God is burning in your bones, what is it that you want to do? Same thing they did. You've got to tell it. Is the word of God burning in your bones? 
Are you telling anybody? Does it really mean something to you? If it burns in your bones, you've got to let somebody know about it. And folks, I think this is where we fall short. There must not be enough deep contemplation of God's word so that we sit here with our fire barely smoldering. We need to get into the word and we need to get fired up. And I think this afternoon is a very good time for us to start. As this saying goes, uh, the saying goes, there's no time but the present. Is that what you want to do? Do you, do you want your fire rekindled? Then what better time can there be now as we come to the Lord's table with deep regret for our failures and praying for a spiritual revival for our future? And may that be the, the thought of our mind for each of us. Let's have a talk with Jesus and let him remind us of what the scriptures say about him, what he did for us. And I think that if we would do that, it would do wonders for our zeal. I want us to think about that as we move into our observance of the supper. The Lord's Supper is a preaching ordinance. That means the purpose of what we do here is to herald Jesus Christ. Preaching is the proclamation of Christ. We herald Christ and that's what the supper is intended to do for the church. We, we've got a symbol here of Jesus Christ. It, this is something found in the scriptures. And so when we observe the supper, we are looking into the scriptures to find Christ. He is in these symbols. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.